Hi, I'm Kathleen Hicks, Senior Vice President and Director of the International Security Program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. And this is Defense 2020, a CSIS podcast examining critical defense issues in the United States' 2020 election cycle. We bring in defense experts from across the political spectrum to survey the debates over the U.S. military strategy, missions, and funding. This podcast is made possible by contributions from BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talus Group. In this episode of Defense 2020, I'll be speaking with three experts to demystify the U.S. defense budget. My colleague, Todd Harrison, Director of Defense Budget Analysis and Director of the Aerospace Security Project at CSIS. Bill Hartung, Director of the Arms and Security Project at the Center for International Policy, and Mackenzie Eglin, Resident Fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. Thanks for joining us today for this conversation about the defense budget. I promise it will be scintillating despite that topic perhaps turning off the average listener, but we're going to start first with our own Todd Harrison here at CSIS to tell us a little bit about what is actually in the U.S. defense budget. What does it actually pay for and cover and maybe some uh, about what is not inside it? Sure. The first thing is the kind of scope what we mean when we say defense budget. Typically, what people talk about nowadays is the national defense budget. For budget geeks, it's the 050 budget function. But really what that is, that's all of DOD. And then it's the part of the Department of Energy that funds nuclear weapons, nuclear reactors used by the military on ships and subs. And then some other cats and dogs throughout the overall federal budget that actually uh, relate to defense. So what it does not include are things like homeland security, uh, the Coast Guard, uh, you know, those types of things uh, are not included in it. Also, it does not include the veterans budget, uh, budget for veterans benefits and services. That is not part of what we talk about when we talk about the national defense budget. And to put it in perspective, for 2019, the fiscal year that we just ended, the total national defense budget uh, was $716 billion. Uh, the Trump administration re- has requested $750 billion for 2020, but under the budget deal that Congress passed back in August, uh, that's now going to be limited to $738 billion uh, for 2020. Congress has not yet passed that budget, uh, so we're still waiting. We don't know what the details are going to be, but you know they are almost certain to go all the way up the limit that's established. So it'll be $738 billion. We just don't know the composition of it yet. And Todd, uh, before we leave you on this point, can you also give a sense of that, how that budget level, that $750 billion request fits in any historical pattern of where defense budgets have been? Yeah, there are a lot of different ways of looking at it. So if you just look at the defense budget and inflation adjusted dollars, so constant dollars, we're not at the the absolute peak, actually peaked in fiscal year 2010 under the Obama administration. Um, so we're not back up to that level yet. But we actually are higher, uh, higher level of defense spending now than we were at the peak of the Reagan buildup in 1985. Uh, So it is, the budget is very robust. It's at a high level by historical standards. Another way of looking at it is as a percentage of the overall U.S. economy, percent of GDP. 
And in that respect, the size of the defense budget as a share of the economy has been declining over time. So now I forget the exact number. We're around three and a half percent of GDP. Um, historically, there have been times when we've been five, six percent of GDP. You go back to the 1950s, we were doing 10 percent of GDP. You know, so why the difference? Why are we higher in inflation adjusted dollars, but lower as a percent of GDP? It's because our wonderful economy has been growing. And so hopefully it'll stay that way. So as long as the economy is growing faster than defense, then defense as a percent of GDP goes down. I argue this is not a good metric to use. Another metric uh, you can look at is defense as a percent of the overall federal budget. And again, you see that defense as a share of the budget, overall budget, has been declining over the years. I think we're at around 15, 16 percent. Uh, of the federal budget now. The reason for that, of course, is the overall federal budget has been growing much faster than defense, mainly because, uh, you know, starting in the 1960s, the addition of a lot of federal government spending, not just for Social Security, but for Medicare, Medicaid, and more recently, the rapid growth in veterans' benefits and services as a share of the federal budget. So defense is a smaller share of the overall federal budget, a smaller share of the overall U.S. economy, but nevertheless, in inflation-adjusted dollars, it's at a high level, higher than it was during the Reagan administration. So, McKenzie, let me turn to you. Todd briefly mentioned that we are at a point now where we're in a continuing resolution. And in fact, in 15 out of the last 21 fiscal years, DOD has begun the year operating under a continuing resolution. Tell us about where we are and what the prospects are for this budget for FY20 in this coming year. It's an unusual place to be in the Budget Control Act era where we actually have the final two-year mini deal, the mini budget deal to amend the caps overall, and yet not that wasn't enough to move the ball forward in getting the bill signed, uh, the defense bill signed into law on time like they were able to do last year because they had the deal. And what's the big difference? The big difference is anger and outrage on both sides of the aisle over the president's uh, declaration of an emergency at the southern border and his pilfering of military construction funds in particular. He took less money from other places in the federal budget, but a vast majority comes out of the defense budget and out of MILCON military construction specifically, of which Assistant Secretary Niemeyer has testified there's a $116 billion deferred maintenance backlog. These are things you can see and touch and unfortunately smell. If you're a member of Congress and you're on these bases and posts and you can look around and say, you know, we need a refresh. Uh, so there's a political... So, that, so just so for a listener, that might include things like uh, family housing. It might include things like facilities maintenance. I'm guessing you're pointing to sewage issues. Are, are those, <laughs> is that a good yes. way of thinking of it? For the most part, family housing is being accepted because they were being a little political about it. But, um, you know, yeah, it can be a generator at a plant in Alaska, which is about to go at any minute, for example. And, uh, well, it gets really cold there most of the year. And these are things, you know, constituents and service members and heroes actually need. So that's the big hang up. And then uh, the hangover is impeachment or above and below every other issue, uh, including defense. And so until... But it's really about the wall. Chairman of the House Armed Services Committee, Adam Smith, is is in negotiations with the White House about how to resolve this issue. But I, I, it's a signature campaign issue for the White House. I just don't know how they're going to get there. So that leaves the defense bills in suspension under a continuing resolution, which is a freeze on last year's spending uh, for DOD. But it's even more and it's worse than that. Uh, so in the last decade in particular, the Defense Department has operated under 10,000 days of continuing resolution. So they don't just start 
they they go quite significantly longer amounts of time, um, in some cases six, and in one almost extreme case, nearly nine months into the fiscal year, which is at that point almost a wash. It's inefficient. It wastes taxpayer money. It wastes time. Now, the department has normalized operations around the assumption of one coming, but this year is feels different than the past in that it could get wrapped up by, by March, but if it doesn't, it could go through the presidential election. Okay, so that would be a four-year plus for FY20 into FY21, which kicks off October 1. But I would want to point out, we've never had a full year continuing resolution for defense in the history of having federal budgets for defense. Never had it. Uh, We always worry about it. I think the likelihood of it actually happening is pretty low. So I I wouldn't want people to freak out about it. (laughs) But what's, what's your bet? I mean, you know, if I had to bet, I, w- I would bet that we would see an extended CR. If they really can't reach a deal on the, the border wall, it, it could go five, six months uh, into the fiscal year. We eventually will get to a, a full year continu- a full year appropriations bill because it's just so incredibly disruptive to so many things that DOD does. It's in no one's interest to do a full year CR. So, Bill, McKinsey already mentioned the the border spending issue, um, obviously also the impeachment issue. From your perspective, what are both the immediate concerns you think are present in the debate over the FY20 budget? And then maybe stepping back a little, do you see you know major fault lines as we are in this election year that will play out in terms of the defense budget? Sure. Well, one thing that kind of stands out is the top line has not been debated in a major way. Democratic leadership came in 733. I think Trump was 750. They came to 738. Pretty modest differences. And of course, Trump did his little back and forth where, oh, maybe we can go down to 700. We're spending a lot of money. And then Mattis and others pushed back. He came back up again. You know, you've got the issue of Trump being somewhat erratic on these matters, although the general trend has been up. He also says things like, Hey, I've had the three biggest, you know, defense budgets ever, which of course is not true. And he actually, when he was in for a few months before his first budget was completed, said he had rebuilt the military. So, so there's that factor of, you know, he does he know what he's saying? Is it for public relations? But it it makes it hard to predict what he might do. And then there's a lot of policy issues in the National Defense Authorization Act. You know, there's been disagreements during the budget process about whether to fund a low yield nuclear weapon, which caused quite a bit of controversy. And, you know, Mac Thornby said, called it a partisan bill because he felt somehow this was sacrosanct, this this notion of a low-yield nuclear weapon. Um, so there's some interesting policy debates, not so much about changing the top line. But I, I think in the presidential arena, that could change a bit. Uh, Warren came out for eliminating OCO, and her version of that includes not just the war money, but the parts of OCO that were subsidizing the base budget. So that would mean all right, so you're getting rid of the war money. It still means you have to figure out in the base budget what you're going to reduce. And she seems aware of that, but she hasn't specified what it would be. Uh, Bernie Sanders talks about corruption and contractors. He makes general statements about, you know, wouldn't it be better if we were spending all this global money on climate change instead of dealing with uh, military spending? And um, But he hasn't put a number on it, and he hasn't put out a, a detailed paper. Uh, Joe Biden is not looking to reduce defense, but one of his um, advisors did say, well, he could envision a scenario where he would spend less than Trump or there would be kind of a leveling, partly by investing more in technology, less in uh, personnel. Uh, He's against, uh, on paper, he's against the forever wars, but his idea that includes possibly 
keeping some troops in Afghanistan. So it's a very kind of fungible uh, term, you know, forever wars because it doesn't tell you what does ending it mean and how are you going to go about it, what timeline, what uh, diplomacy will accompany it, if any, or are you going to do what Donald Trump just did in Syria, you know, where you just pull out with no consultation with anybody and cause a, a disaster. Any other big issues that aren't already on the table that anyone thinks for, are going to become divisive around the defense budget? I mean, you know, one of the things that's looming, and they're not going to handle it this year, but one of the things that's looming is cuts to legacy force structure. That for the department to actually move out on this strategy and to, you know, fund the capabilities and new technologies, but also the new forces that they're going to need in the future. They're not going to be able to do that in any kind of budget-constrained environment, um, even if the top line's higher. They're still going to need to cut some legacy force structure. And so I think that is increasingly going to be part of the debate. And in the past, when the department tries to cut legacy force structure, that's where Congress you know, will often step in and prevent it because um, there are a lot of constituents that have vested interest in that legacy force structure. And so I think that's becoming more and more of an issue. Mackenzie, one of our last speakers on this podcast series, Mark Kansian here at CSIS, uh, used this great phrase saying that he thinks that the deficit hawks have been hunted to extinction in the Republican Party. Do you think that's a fair characterization of where the debate on defense budget is today up on Capitol Hill with the Republicans? The debt and the annual deficits aren't an issue until they are. And I think it's a cyclical process. Uh, so it, it comes in and it goes. Uh, I don't think it ever goes away permanently. I recall uh, testifying before the late Senator John McCain and uh, uh, the Senate had just passed the president's proposed tax bill, not cut, because I think mine went up. But uh, uh, the tax bill had just passed and all the Democrats on the committee were asking our questions about the national defense strategy, lamenting this bill and talking about the debt. So actually, it's you know it depends on who's in the White House. And the, it's a good, convenient talking point for the party of opposition, regardless of which party that is. Uh, now, is there another Tea Party wave ahead for the GOP? No, I don't actually, I agree. I don't see that unless there's some external forcing function that gets Washington scared. Uh, and I don't know what that would be. Uh, the markets seem fine, and and uh, I, I'm not. I just don't see it yet on the horizon. But I mean, also, if you look historically, uh, Republicans tend to become more fiscally conservative when a Democrat's in the White That's, House. That's yeah. what I'm saying. Yeah, <laughs> totally. And vice so, versa. So if we see if we see the White House change control, and you know, in the next election, um, then I would expect the uh, the Tea Party folks to come back out of the woodwork in the Republican Party. And I mean, there's at least one fiscal conservative that's still alive and well, even though he's not necessarily being listened to. It's Mick Mulvaney. Um, and he's right there at the president's ear. And, you know, he is deep down in his bones, a fiscal conservative who wants to reduce the size of government, including defense. Um, and, and that is ever present. Well, I think one thing that may be of concern over the next, say, five years is at this level of deficits, the interest on the debt is going to become a larger share of the total budget, maybe rivaling defense. And so that is a constraint, even if it doesn't affect the larger economy. So there is this looming crisis I think all of you are talking about, about balancing expenditure and revenue. 
And we don't really have a solution on the horizon. I doubt it's going to happen in an election year. But maybe if you can each look ahead, cast yourselves ahead a year, the election turns out whatever it turns out. Uh, what are the prospects for getting to any kind of consensus around um, managing our way through the bigger budget challenges that, that defense has to sit within? Well, it'll be a new environment without the CAPS and the BCA. I don't know if that's going to be helpful or hurtful. Um, you know, the BCA, Budget Control Act, the Democrats would support somewhat larger defense spending in order to get the caps on domestic spending lifted. So if that's out of the picture, maybe it's more of a free-for-all. You know, it's hard to say. And of course, you've got the issue of embedded interests in legacy systems because of jobs, um, and that will be present. And so if somebody's coming in saying, I'm going to cut those systems, that'll be a fight that may not break down on party lines, maybe based on where you where you sit, where you live. Um, so it's, yeah, I think it's hard to say. And, and as has been pointed out, I think, on other uh, issues of this podcast, uh, these things don't happen overnight. You know, even if you want to start to cut, it takes a while for the, the savings to kick in. So, In addition to that, we have on the table in this cycle, uh, you know, these pretty major investment ideas, particularly coming from some of the Democratic candidates, but also the president, in theory, has an infrastructure approach that he'd like to pursue at some point. So so this issue of where the revenue is going to come from, I'm, I'm just wondering if actually it will come a little more to the head than it has. And, and I don't know if that makes it more likely that we can come to a resolution, but I, I'm thinking the year one would do that in general would be following a, a presidential election. That's when you have the most momentum. So prospects? Yeah, I, I mean, I don't know. I guess I'm a little pessimistic um, because you look back and the congressional budget process has really been dysfunctional for more than a decade. I mean, certainly since 2011. It's been a, just a really dysfunctional process in Congress. In the normal process that was set up, you know, back in 1974, the last time they really overhauled the process, uh, was you're supposed to start every year with a budget resolution, right? And so that's that's where Congress considers the overall federal budget and how much are we going to allocate to different parts of it, including national defense, um, you know, and then you do your allocations down and you say, okay, well, this is how much, you know, the defense appropriations can committee has uh, and all the other appropriation committees. And then, you know, you go down from that to this is how much we're going to do for DOD versus DOE, um, right? Uh, and then all of that, you know, winds back up and you pass 12 separate appropriations bills and you get them enacted by October 1st. That's how it's supposed to work. Uh, it's not been working that way. Um, what has happened since the Budget Control Act was enacted is that this whole budget resolution process has kind of become somewhat irrelevant. It's all been about debating how are we going to modify the budget caps for defense and non-defense. Uh, and we have been doing that in two-year deals uh, that take a very long time and are very painful to get to, but then we get to a two-year deal. And that effectively does the job of the budget resolution. Uh, and then they, you know, at the last minute, figure out the appropriations, cram them together in a big omnibus bill or some minibus bills where they pass a bunch of appropriations at once. Uh, they do it late in the fiscal year. Uh, it's a must-pass piece of legislation. Um, and, there's, you know, members of Congress are forced to kind of, you know, suck it up and just vote for it. Um, now we come to the end of the budget you know, caps, uh, then we don't have that forcing function anymore uh, of, oh, well, here's how we're going to get to a budget deal. We're going to negotiate the caps and it's trade-off, defense and non-defense. And we all know how that works. We don't have that anymore starting in fiscal year 22. 
Uh, and that will be the new when the new administration is stepping right into it. That will be this. That's their first full their budget first to budget. put together. Yeah. yeah. And so there's not a, a, the budget process in Congress has been broken down. There's not a natural framework like the Budget Control Act budget caps to start a negotiation. So I think there's a lot of uncertainty on how that's going to work. Mackenzie, can you depress us a little less? <laughs> right. So let me let me list some of the things I think you were referencing, Kath, in you know, the appetite for new spending. And I do think it's all, on both sides. It's just slightly less on the Republican side. Uh, Medicare for all, Green New Deal, universal pre-K, student debt forgiveness slash relief. These are some election themes, right, of new spending ideas, uh, many of which I'm sure are considered would be considered mandatory spending as in uh, automatically funded uh, by Congress as opposed to being debated on the floor and voted on uh, through the appropriations bills. And of course, those new spending ideas, which are significant, um, come on the heels of a major new entitlement under President Obama, Obamacare, and under President Bush, Medicare Part D, after his effort to reform Social Security failed so spectacularly, he decided to add a brand new unfunded permanent entitlement. Uh, but if you look at the, if we go back in time to the Budget Control Act uh, 2011 timeframe, President Obama was dealing with a, a powerful Tea Party at the time. And who was the, we have some precedent here to thinking about your question. The largest bill payer overall in the Budget Control Act reductions was the Defense Department. So I think, uh, and members on um, uh, on the GOP are going, if that were to be proposed, something like that again, and I suspect it will be actually, BCA by another name. Uh, defense will probably, it will look very similar to exactly how the last one was. Defense takes a dis disproportionate hit, um, partly because of the last three years of increases. In defense. And Bill, just to close this topic out, do you think under any new deal that could be struck, do you anticipate that Democrats will continue to want the dollar for dollar cap approach on domestic spending and defense? Because it, it does seem like that's given them leverage on on issues that they wanted to advance. I think that's a good question. I mean, under Trump, it was a different calculation because he came in with these big proposed cuts in diplomacy and domestic spending. And then the Democrats had to try to put the money back. Now, if you have a Democratic president who's not going to do that, then Congress might have a different terrain to, to work on. And one thing we, we didn't mention explicitly here that's worth calling out is interest on the national debt, right? Uh, and that's ever-present. Um, it's growing. And it in no small part depends on you know the rate at which we can continue to borrow money. Uh, and right now, interest rates are very low, and that's great. But got to be mindful of the fact that interest rates won't always be low. Uh, and when our borrowing costs go up, um, you're going to see a huge expansion of the federal budget just going to pay interest on the national debt. Uh, and you know, projections look like within a few years, we will be spending more on interest payments on the national debt than we do on national defense. Not because national defense has been cut, but because interest costs are growing. And the more we keep running up a deficit, you know, we're running trillion dollar deficits each year now. The more we keep doing that, the more we are putting this, you know, out there in the future that we're going to be spending more and more every year on interest. And 
you know, I like to remind people interest doesn't buy you anything except time. You know, I'm really glad you brought that point up because I do think we often get in Washington and certainly on the in the campaign seasons, you get into these guns versus butter conversations around budget. And there's nothing wrong with that. It's just it is missing this big picture. I think CBO, Congressional Budget Office projections, you're going to correct me, Todd, if I have this wrong, show that on our current pathway within the next 30 years, actually probably less than that, we will be crowding out all discretionary spending. So we won't be sitting here having a conversation about how much to spend on Head Start versus defense. We will be talking about how much to spend on the interest on the debt and this, if you will, mandatory social spending. Is that a fair way to think yeah. about the bigger budget challenge? Absolutely. I mean, and another way of thinking of it is, is that we are borrowing money today just to pay interest on money we already borrowed. Uh, that's not a good way to run your personal finances, uh, much less a government. Uh, you can do it for a while, but you know when you lose the ability to borrow money cheaply, uh, you quickly, very quickly run out of options. Okay, I want to close out this podcast. We're gonna we're gonna dive into some deeper issues on defense budget in our next podcast. But I want to close this one out by asking around the table, starting with Bill to sort of try to capture your perspective on where we sit today on the defense budget with a pop culture or cultural reference that you think um, can quickly convey your thoughts. Well, I was thinking about this on the train, and I had divergent views, of course. Um, one is William Butler Yeats, who, of course, is at the top of everybody's mind as a pop culture <laughs> figure. Uh, you know, the center will not hold. You know, is this kind of consensus on the top line going to go away in this new budget environment. But then I thought about the who, don't get fooled again, which basically anything that's put forward at the beginning of the year, don't assume it's going to look that way at the end of the year, especially if there's a new administration. Great. Todd? You know, I, I, I'm i going to appeal to the baby boomers out there listening, uh, Rolling okay, Stones. Boomer. Yeah. Okay, boomer. Uh, you can't always get what you want. And you know, often we forget this, that, you know, the president proposes a budget, but Congress ultimately enacts it. Uh, and the things that we often know we should do or the things that the military wants to do in the budget, you're not always going to be able to get it. Uh, and I think it's important for folks to remember that, you know, the Joint Chiefs can get up there and pound the table and say they need three to five percent real growth every year in the defense budget. Reality is you can't always get that. Uh, I think the answer also lies in the lyrics of the same song that if you try some time, you just might find you can get what you need. Uh, so it's not always about getting everything you want. Sometimes you got to get serious about what do we really need. Great. And McKinsey, you get the last word. So many choices from Arrested Development to Alice in Adventures in Wonderland, but I settled on The Big Short, which of course was the movie that it was actually, no, excuse me, a real world event, but the movie based on, you know, the subprime house, housing market lending and the credit default swaps that basically sent the economy into a tailspin and recession uh, 2008. So I'm not saying that that's that's what's coming, but I'm saying the reckoning over your question over all of these issues under uh, uh, basically the federal government's priorities and where we're putting dollars and including dollars we don't have and spend anyway uh, will be particularly um, acute this this coming election. Great. Well, Mackenzie Uglin, Todd Harrison, Bill Hartung, thanks so much for joining me today. On behalf of CSIS, I'd like to thank our sponsors, BAE Systems, Lockheed Martin, Northrop Grumman, and the Talis Group for contributing to Defense 2020. 
If you enjoyed this podcast, check out some of our other CSIS podcasts, including Smart Women, Smart Power, The Truth of the Matter, The Asia Chessboard, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog. And for all of CSIS's defense-related content, visit defense360.csis.org.